Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast, and this is how the podcast starts. I ask my guests who they are. So, hello, who are you? I'm Bianca Chatfield. Do you need any more than that? Well, I mean, over the next hour or so, I'll need more than that. But, you know, you don't have to I'll kick try. off. Okay, okay. I don't want to give you too much that. too early. Now, Bianca, well, firstly, let's kick off uh, before we get to who you are and all the various things that you have done. I want to talk to you about something that you were actually doing on Monday, mm-hmm. if you don't mind. In fact, I have my uh, Freeze MND beanie uh, here in front of me, which is uh, one of the greatest beanies I've ever owned in my entire life. And I have quite a lot of beanies. Okay, yep. uh, I won't rank them. I don't think it's a good way to start the podcast, me just ranking all the various beanies I have, but it is one of the all time great beanies. But the reason it's also a great beanie is because it's for an amazing cause, which is to raise money into research into uh, motor neuron disease. Yes. And they do this big event at the MCG where they get a bunch of celebrities or people from different walks of life, uh, this year, you know, it, it champion sports people. Uh, mm-hmm. to slide down a slide into a bath of ice water to uh, raise uh, awareness and money uh, for the charity. Yeah. And you are one of those people. I'm one of those people. And I must admit, for the last, what, five years or four years that it's been going, you see Neil Danaher and the way he speaks in the media. You know, I had no idea about MND. I had no clue. I'd heard about it. I didn't realize what a horrific disease it is. But every time you see him talk about it, he's become the face of it. And he's just so inspirational. So to be honest, when you get the call up to say, do you want to come down the slide? You just have to say yes, because it's a small little thing that we can do to try and help raise awareness and to try and raise funds and sell the beanies and get people to donate so they can find a cure for this just horrible disease that, I don't know, I can't imagine, you know, knowing somebody closely or going through it yourself because it just looks absolutely horrific. It is. And it takes away from people the capacity to communicate Mm. a lot of the time, right? And this is part of the problem is that in the past, they've had trouble raising awareness of it and raising money for it because the people who are suffering from it often lose their ability to communicate effectively. That's one of the horrible things about the disease. And it's, I I hate this language, but you know, in the terms that we use, it it wasn't a sexy disease. It wasn't one that got the headlines or the attention. And one of the great things that Neil has done, I mean, Neil being a champion sports person in his own right and a champion sports coach in his own right and achieved a lot of things. The greatest thing that he may be remembered for is the, the work and legacy that he will have left in this direction because Not only has he raised awareness and raised an incredible amount of money that's gone into scientific research around it, but the thing that I think he's done that even has impressed me more is that he's let people who don't speak perfectly, you know, the ravages of the disease, have a voice in the media because of who he was and what he brings to the table. You know, people will interview him on television despite, you know, Uh, the fact that he's incapacitated to a certain degree by the disease. They will have him on the radio despite the fact that his voice now sounds, you know, incapacitated by the disease. And I think that in itself has been a very valuable thing. I agree. And I sit back and I look at him and I think, what a selfless thing to do when you yourself are going through hell, you have no idea how long you're going to survive this and how long you're going to be able to, you know, talk and breathe and move. Yet, this precious time that you have with all your family and friends, you're spending raising awareness for this horrific disease. Like that to me is something that makes a really remarkable person is that they will do that for the greater good rather than just for themselves. And he just amazes me. And, you know, I just feel very privileged to even be asked to do this um, and to be a part of what will be a huge day on Monday. Have you got to spend some time with Neil himself? I've met him once before. He sent me um, a few text messages over the last few days, just talking about outfits and what's happening. (laughs) Um, But no, that's that's probably the bit that stands out for me is getting to spend some time with him on Monday and uh, just see some of the work he does up close. And okay, so uh, (laughs) the actual slide itself, have you thought about it much because it is it's a decent slide and it's into i've been told by everybody who's done it an incredibly cold uh you know amount of water and ice yes and i mean as athletes you know you're used to doing ice bars and things but it's in a much more controlled environment environment other than throwing yourself down a slide into these ice uh i haven't really thought much about that the thing that's been stressing me out is my outfit because every single year it gets 
more, you know, more creative and everyone puts so much more effort into it. And so now we're a, you know, a bunch of retired athletes. There's no theme as such. So you can do whatever you want. And Neil's advice is just have fun with it. And I'm like, I need a theme. I need, <laughs> so this is the bit that's kind of doing my head in a little bit, but anyway, I'll get there. I'll come up with something creative. So you haven't decided on something yet? Uh, like, I, you know, the thing for me, do I go netball-ish, but then it's a bit boring and what can you really do with netball? And then do I do something totally outrageous? And I think I'm going to go down more the outrageous pathway. Just completely different. <laughs> Have you got any ideas for me, actually? Uh, none that we can discuss on air because oh, it's got to okay. be a surprise. Well, that's exactly for the day, that's true. That's you know. true. <laughs> so I can't, I can't give you all my good ideas here. Okay. But stand by. Uh, what about the idea of uh, doing it in front of all those people? Is that something that is intimidating to you, or are you used to by now? You know, having dealt with you know being a professional sports person, but then you know being on television, and we'll get to that as well. The idea that People know who you are now that you, you know, will be performing in front of crowds of people. But this is the MCG, you know, yeah. this is, there's probably going to be, you know, 60, 70, 80,000 people there on the day all sort of watching this happen. Yeah. Let alone people watching on TV. Um, I haven't thought much about it. However, as I'm getting older, I care less and less and less about what other people think, <laughs> if that makes sense. So for me, I, you know, if, if this was five years ago, I would be so stressing about what I looked like and what I was wearing and what I was doing. Whereas now I'm like, I'm doing it for a great cause. I'm there to have fun. And I'm just going to, yeah, I'm not going to think necessarily about that in a negative way that so many people are watching it. I think that um, what you're saying is really interesting to me, which is that idea of caring less about what other people think as you get older. I don't think it's what everybody does, but I mm. think that it, you know, is probably quite a, a common story to yeah. a certain degree that you let go of some of those insecurities that you might've brought to the table or things that you used to think were super important that you realize as you get older are nowhere near as important. Oh, absolutely. And comparing yourself to others, actually, that's probably one thing for me as an athlete, I got so entrenched in, in my mind about, you know, if someone had made a team over me, what were they doing better than me? Were they fitter? Were they stronger? Were they taller? And what did I need to do to get into that team? And I was very narrow focused and sure that competitiveness and determination helped me no doubt get to where I did in, in netball, but it also, I think, became quite a negative trait too, that you were just so always looking around at other people and how you had to be. And, oh, it's so refreshing to not be like that as much anymore, to be able to let that go and, and, and not be so worried about how you have to be and being okay with who you actually are. I, I imagine as an athlete though, that that must be com particularly challenging because there are direct measurables. Yeah, like, yes. You know, you can actually look at somebody. If you're running the 100 metres at the Olympics and if someone's running it faster than you, yeah. you can go, well, this person is doing something that's making them better than me. What is it? I'm going to examine each and every bit of it. So what did that, what form would that take in your life when you would look at others? Well, I think for me, it was always, uh, yes, to make a team, you know, you had to have certain physical attributes. Um, but I think to make it as a female athlete, this is where things get quite interesting it's, you don't obviously get paid a lot to play your sport and it got more professional as I played, but to get opportunities outside of your sport, you would be, you know, whether it's ambassador roles or sponsorship roles, it would often go down to what you look like as well. And so then you were competing with girls in a way that you never thought that you would be because, you know, media or, you know, ambassador roles would be about what you look like. And so then you're competing with people and comparing yourself to how come they got that and what do I not do? And how do you actually make a living out of this sport without changing who you really are? Um, and so it took me probably, so I went through my career, you know, made the Aussie team when I was 18. I got given everything quite quickly and then I got dropped and had to fight my way around and, and move around that way. And it wasn't until I probably got dropped in 2010 before the Com Games, you know, I went through a bit of a tough time for six months going, oh, what am I doing? Should I retire? And, um, but I had six months away from the sport and it was so refreshing just to go, oh, actually I'm okay with who I am and what I've done so far. And I don't need to be like any of these other girls anymore. I don't need to copy their pathway to try and get myself back in the team and to try and make a living out of the sport. I am okay just navigating my own way through this. And it took me a while because I stepped out of the sport to actually see it in a better way. And the same thing happened when I retired. I'm like, oh, Wow. Like not even 1% of the world give a shit about netball. And I spent my whole life obsessing about it. And 
yeah, it, it, you don't know it until you're out of the bubble. And so that was really refreshing for me. So retiring from being an athlete for me, not that it was an easy process, but I think it was one that came with a great deal of reflection, which I feel like has made me a much better, well-rounded person um, than what I was when I was actually playing. One of the things that I found most difficult in my life is, um, yeah, being able to tr trust myself mm. to, to not, when I say compare myself to others, I've not necessarily ever been one of those people who, you know, it doesn't come with a lot of, I, I rarely look at someone else and go, I wish they hadn't got that opportunity. I wish I had, Yeah. but I have often never uh, not had the confidence that who I am and the way that I choose to do something is the right way or is a worthwhile way or is a way that I can believe in. And so often that means that you then go, well, I'll do it like this person I admire yeah. or I'll do it like this other person that I admire because I admire them and I admire what they've achieved. So I should do things the same way. And often in that situation, you end up finding yourself going, oh, this isn't really how I would do it or yeah. how it works for me. So talk me through some of that, that process in, in your sporting career first, and then we'll move on to other things. Yeah. But um, how did that actually manifest itself? Uh, I think, um, you know, when you, when you're playing a sport, I think uh, when you're trying to get into the Australian team, there's this mentality that only so many people can be successful, that, you know, your version of success has to be the same as somebody else's. So it might be making the Australian team, being captain, winning a gold medal at the Com Games and World Champs. And that's the ultimate thing you can do in sport. Uh, in our sport. And then for others, some people are content with just making it to play for Melbourne Vixens, maybe winning a premiership, but just getting the best out of themselves and being, you know, happy and enjoying it along the way. And I think I would look at other people and players I would play with and I would think, okay, I have to do that. I have to get the captaincy and I have to win a gold medal. And that's the only way that I'm going to look back on my career and be happy with it. And it's just so not the right thing because I would get myself into the Australian team and I would be, I'd have a close, sorry, I would take you back. I had a close knit group here in Melbourne who I would play with a lot of senior girls who were always looking after you as a younger player who would make sure that you knew how the team worked and how the rules kind of, how you work within them and how you get the best out of yourself. And I felt so empowered in this environment. And then you step into the Australian team and this is back in the day where it was just like a dog eat dog kind of world. There was only room for so many to be successful and that no, the older players didn't necessarily care about the younger players. They saw them more as a threat rather than they wanted to help them. Uh, and so I remember going away for my first tour and we were over in England. And again, I was 18, so I was really young. And I just remember coming home thinking, is that what life is like playing for your country? Because like, I didn't feel like I had a that much fun. The only people that really got around and supported me were my own Melbourne teammates who were in that team. And it just didn't feel like that version of success that I had made out in my head, what playing for your country would be like. And so from that moment, like I would start to realize that some people in teams make you feel good. Some people in teams don't make you feel good. Don't necessarily follow the path of the ones that don't make you feel good because they might be the most successful people in the team. Um, and it took a while to kind of navigate that and how I was going to make that into my own, um, powerful story in a way and how I was, once I became a leader, it became, okay, what made me feel good when I was out there? What were people doing to me that made me feel great about myself and made me play well? That's the stuff that I've got to channel my own leadership skills into. And that's the stuff I've got to give to my own teammates. Um, yeah, rather than just what's always been done before you. I, I do find sometimes that you learn a lot about what sort of person you want to be, particularly in a leadership role from experiencing negative versions. Yes. Like yeah. often, often you don't know what you're realizing. You're, you don't realize what you're learning from somebody who's good Yeah. because it just, it feels right. <laughs> yeah, correct. But you don't necessarily, but the people who are doing it the opposite or in a way that it really rubs up against what your values are, they're the ones you go, well, I don't want to be like that. If I'm ever in this position... I don't want to be like that. Yeah. And I think that that can be really important. So tell me when you're 18, like where, where did you come from? So to, cause to play for Australia at 18, you must've been a, like a champion junior sports person. Where did you grow up? I grew up down the Mornington Peninsula in okay. Victoria and, um, sport was just a thing I did, you know, basketball, netball, horse riding, gymnastics, anything. I would just do it. And my parents were always really into about us not being in front of the TV and get outside and do something. And it helps being from a, you know, country-ish sort of area where everyone is playing sport on the weekends. 
I mean, I think the one attribute that I always had and that I didn't realise what an advantage or an asset it was until I did play sport was my height. My dad is six foot four, my mum is 5'11", and I was always going to be tall. And growing up as a tall girl is often very unique and very different. Uh, And I've got two sisters, so one older, one younger, and they're both around six foot and I'm six foot two. And so sport was the one place where I started to feel confident about my height. When I was at school and when I was with my friends and when I was, you know, out on the weekends, just, you know, being social, I would always be so um, just self-conscious about how tall I was. I wouldn't want to wear heels because I didn't want to be any taller and, you know, none of your friends' clothes would fit you because you were such a different size. And so I was constantly trying to be like everyone else because I just wanted to be normal. (laughs) Whatever normal is, I wanted to be normal. Uh, But it wasn't until I stepped out, and especially on the netball court, where all of a sudden people were loving that you were tall. And I could see that when I was out there on court, I I felt good about myself. And then I would, you know, obviously make teams a lot earlier than others because I had height on my side and they could teach you how the game. You know, I wasn't the most coordinated because most tall people are not very coordinated when they're young. But that was how it sort of developed in me that being out on the court gave me confidence in myself. And then that eventually started to translate into the rest of my world where I would be off the court and I'd love that I was tall and I was around other tall girls and we'd wear heels all the time and you wouldn't even, I wouldn't even question it now. But honestly, a day would not go by where I'm not walking past someone and someone will comment on my height and you're like, and I'm so used to it now and I'm, I'm totally okay with it. But back in the day, I used to be like, shut up everybody. Why do I have to stand out? Like, can't I just be like everybody else? It's amazing how much we just don't want to stand out when we're young. I know, isn't it? Like you don't want to be the exception. You don't want to be exceptional. You want to be like everybody Everybody else. else. Why can't I just be like everybody else? And now I couldn't think of anything worse than just being like everybody else. Like you look back at it now when you're older and you think, oh, it's so great that you can completely take a different path to what everybody else does in the world. You can make different decisions. You know, if I was normal, like everybody I went to school with in a way, you know, I wouldn't have ever left the peninsula. I wouldn't have ever traveled the world or, you know, taken risks and worried about everything else later. Uh, I would never have had that mentality. I probably would be just down there working a normal full-time job and, you know, probably had a few kids and just carried on with life. It's uh, tall, tall women is not something that, be, I mean, being a, a young boy, you don't really think about these things anyway, but yeah. I was the same height as I am now, which is like six, two and a half, you yeah. know, not, not enough to be six, three, somewhere yeah. in between six, two <laughs> and six, three. And, um, uh, but I was this height when I was probably 13, 13, 14, had my growth spurt and then just never, never kicked on with the second one that would have let me play basketball or something. <laughs> but, um, <clears throat> I had a period of time. Do you know what a dead ball is? Yes, I did my deb. Okay. So the idea of the dead ball was that the women asked the very old fashioned, all those things, but (laughs) it was this, the girls asked the guys and this was the idea of it. And I think we did it in like year 10 or year 11. It was well into school. Yeah. But I remember it must've been year seven, maybe halfway through year seven, I started getting approached by girls to see if I would be their partner for the dead ball, which was in like year 10 or year 11. And I could not understand what was going on until my mum was like, are they all tall girls? And I was like, yeah. And she goes, you're the only tall person. They're all like, they don't, they want to find someone who's taller than they are. And that was the first time in my life I was even aware of the fact that that was a thing. And then my sister is taller than her husband. And I, I remember when they got married again, like just the, the kind of conversation and jokes and societal sort of, I, I didn't realize it was such a thing. Like, such a thing. But it's such a thing. And that's the first thing people always ask you, like, are you seeing somebody? Is yeah. he taller than you? <laughs> <laughs> You're just like, can you wear heels? Calm down. Yeah, can you wear heels? And I mean, I must admit, like, I, I'm not sure I would be overly attracted to someone who was, you know, five foot. But um, <laughs> yeah, height is, is a big thing. And everybody loves to comment on it all the time. I mean, you don't walk up to someone and go, oh my God, you're so fat, do you? Like, it's 
It's just totally not, not anymore. Allowed. I don't think. <laughs> but you're allowed. I think to there go. was probably a period of time where people did, but. <laughs> oh my god, you're so tall. Mm. I wonder. I, actually, I wonder if short people get that all the time because that's quite offensive. Too. Uh, they do. Short people definitely do. Um, <laughs> you're and so little. I've made my fair share of Brendan Bolton jokes this week, <laughs> <laughs> so I can't even. I put my hand up, but uh, I think that people don't see tall as being. I think the the reason that people comment on it is that most people think that being tall is great. Oh, yeah. It's a huge advantage. Yeah. And you, you know what? It absolutely is. And I, there's no way I would have ever played for Australia unless I was tall. That was like definitely a huge asset. Um, but yeah, it's, it just cracks me up every single day that how much people are obsessed by it. Okay. So you, you play high school sport, but you play a range of sports, but netball is the one that is your main passion? Yeah, well, I just... Or the one you were best at? I think I, I just climbed the ladder further. And and this is also when I discovered my competitiveness and that I my older sister played netball too. So she was more of a netballer than I was. And I started seeing her climb the ranks. So that was what was me as a little, the little sister who just kind of go, hmm, if she can do it, maybe I can too. And so then I was pretty much for quite a while following in her footsteps and and learning a lot by how she did things, you know, probably very subconsciously at the time, but she was a shooter and, and I was a defender. Um, and shooters are quite often more emotional about things, you know, they're more emotional about their performance and I would see her, you know, she might've missed a few goals and it would really get her down after a game. And, and I would look at her and be like, who cares? Like, you'll be fine. Like, whatever. And, and that's such a defender's mentality is that you just move on. You want honest feedback. You don't care about the emotional side of it all. Um, and so I would watch her and, and I would see how much sometimes that would riddle her is the confidence that she would have and the, um, just the toll it would take on her to make sure she shot her goals every game. Um, and I was like, oh, I don't want to be like that. You know, how can that affect you so much once you get out there on the court? Um, and yeah, I think subconsciously that really helped me become a player where I didn't let the emotions get me down too much. So whatever had happened during my day, I'd step out there on the court and I was able to completely remove myself from that situation and be in the moment on the court and not feel down and out because something bad's happened to you during the day. Like I mentally became a very strong player and that was often what I had over others was my mental game. Physical game, I had to work my absolute butt off to be fit. It, you know, that was what I'd have to do extra work on all the time to be fit enough, to be lean enough, to be able to jump high enough. Um, that was, yeah, those athletes like a Sherelle McMahon, who we all know is a great Melbourne netballer, she was physically and mentally both really gifted. And I was so jealous of that because I'm like, you don't even have to train hard and you're super fit anyway. But yeah, the mental game I was okay with, but the physical game was the tough one for me. Uh, having that perspective on the mentality of uh, shooters versus defenders, did you also use that against Absolutely. opponents that you would have? Totally. Because it is a confidence game for a shooter. And, you know, as a defender, it's your job to get in their head and to intimidate them and to make them be thinking about their shot. So you would do that as much as you possibly could because the rules of netball, we know it's a non-contact sport, although it is a contact sport. And, um, you know, you can't do much as a defender other than cleanly take an intercept. And that's really hard to do with the speed of the game. So any way that you could put the shooters in a position, um, whether that is physically put them in a position or mentally be in their head so that you were reminding them constantly that you're right there and that the pressure is on, That's would that would help you win. That was sometimes the only thing that you had over some shooters. And by the time I got to the end of my career, as a six foot two girl, I was short to be a defender. There's Jamaican girls who are six foot five, six foot six and can jump and I was like, I can't do anything else now physically, but mentally, that's still what I could try and put the pressure on them with. It wasn't about sledging either. Netball, actually, we were really boring. No one sledged really in netball, especially not as a defender because they could always turn and shoot in your face and then yeah. you had nothing left. So. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, it wasn't necessarily with words that you would do it. It's just, you know, how you would kind of manoeuvre them and, um, you know, defend that shot and just keep them guessing all the time. 
tell me about being so successful so early. What's that like? Because most people at 18 years old, you know, maybe going off to university, getting their first job, you know, these sort of life experiences, going traveling, yeah. you know, suddenly you are doing some of those things. Maybe you've got, you know, you've got your, a job and you're traveling, but you know, your job is playing netball for Australia and you are traveling, you know, to play netball for Australia mm. and you're 18 years old. Like, what is that like? Well, I mean, I don't know any different, but it, I was always conflicted because you always wanted to be normal with your friends and going out and drinking with them on the weekends. And I was always a pain in the butt because I'd be like, oh, sorry, I've got netball. Oh, I've got netball. I can't do this. So I always felt like I was missing out. Yet here I am getting to play for my country, doing something that everyone dreams of doing. Uh, and it took a lot of sacrifices to be able to, to, be able to do that. Um, I made it really early, but then that's when the roller coaster ride started for me. So you know how everyone, when we're not comparing ourselves to others, but you look at how other people make it and everyone makes it such different ways. There's no one pathway to get there. So I think mine was definitely... And there's no one pathway that is perfect No, either, no, know? that's like, right. Yeah, you know, everybody imagines that the best thing of all would be to be the prodigy who's, you know, playing for yeah. your, your country at 18, yeah, rather than the person who, you know, achieved that same success at 26 or 27 after. The, both of those things teach you very different lessons. That's right. And so I made it as an 18-year-old because one of the girls in the team was pregnant. So she had to have 12 months off. I think it was great timing as well as performing at the right time and put me in, give me an opportunity. I was in the team for 12 months and then I got dropped. So that's when you get the reality check because, you know, you – your friends love to give it to you now because, oh, you're in the Australian team now. You're not. So they would like focus on that and just give me absolute shit for <laughs> and bring me right back down to earth. Um, but then that's probably too what instills in you that fighter mentality around, okay, I thought I wanted it. I knew my sister really wanted it and I managed to get it first. And then now that I had it and it's taken away from me, I want it again because I want to do it better and I want to have a better experience and I want to go to a com games and I want to go to a world champs. And, and it really, that made me a better athlete getting dropped at 18 because I, you know, I look at it now, I, there was no way I was as fit as I could be. There was no way I was the netballer I wanted to be. So yeah, I still had that burning desire to actually get back in and be a proper member of that team. So not the only time you got dropped? Not the only time I got dropped. So talk us through... <laughs> So I was in it for about six years, I think. Once I so got dropped, had a year out, got back in, in it for six years. Um, and Com Games for me was always the most exciting thing as a netballer. I um, mean, with the Australian team because you're a part of a bigger Australian team. It's our version of the Olympics. Yeah. And some people look at Com Games and go, "Whatever, what a joke." But for us, it was a big deal. And um, so I went to Melbourne Com Games in 2006, and we got silver. So we lost to New Zealand. We had a pretty um, just tough time of it. But for me, it was one of the best experiences walking out onto the MCG as a part of the opening ceremony, being in your hometown. Like there's not much that can match it other than getting a silver. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, again, like just all those little disappointments Then I was like, right, okay, I want to, I want to go to India in 2010 because I want a gold medal. And so three years later, go to selections for the India Com Games and they read out the team in alphabetical order. And for me, being Chatfield, I'm always quite up the top. So they were reading the team out and uh, my name wasn't there. <laughs> and it, it sort of had come as a shock. There was part of me that knew that I had to fight for my position in the side. But we were up at AIS in Canberra and we had five days of selections and I thought I'd done enough to get into the team. Um, and so when I found myself not in the side, it's, we, it's not like it is now where there was no support around you. You literally find out you're not in the team. You stand up, you walk out of the room. There's only 20 people in that room. You walk out of the room, go back to your room at the AIS, pack your bags, get yourself to the airport, get on a plane, get back to Melbourne and there's not one person that's around you going, are you okay? How are you handling this? Uh, and so I had about probably five or six hours where just on my own. And I remember dumping my bags at the airport and I just went for a walk around Canberra airport outside. And I was just trying to like gather my thoughts around how I'm going to cope with this. One, because of my own expectations I had on myself, but also because you feel like you're letting other people down, you know, your parents are excited. They want to book their trip. They want to come over and watch you. And you've got all of that in your head going, uh-oh, and now I'm going to have to make that phone call. 
and tell them I'm not in the team. And then you deal with all the gossip from everybody else and you deal with the people around you who make you feel good and because they tell you that you should have been there, but they're not necessarily the right people to have around you at that time. And um, so I went through all of that and I remember, and actually you're a Bulldog supporter, aren't you? Um, So I was on the plane on the way home from Canberra and I was reading the Herald Sun and Jason Ackermanis had just been dumped from the Bulldogs and he had written a column in the Herald Sun and he basically potted every single person he possibly could have, including his team. And there's not one part of that article where he ever took responsibility himself. And you know how it's a bit of divine timing and that this article was in front of me. I also wrote a column in the Herald Sun at that time and I was reading it and it just, I was like, what a selfish athlete. And I... From that moment when I walked off that plane, I was like, I don't care how much I want to be angry and pot people and, you know, just tell everybody how I really think about this. I do not want to come across like he did because we both play a team sport and it's more than just you. And in these moments when your back's up against the wall, I think it's how you react in these situations, which kind of determines what happens next. And, um, you know, I, the best thing for me reading that article, but then being able to get off that plane and go, okay, I need to like corner myself with just the people I trust at the moment. And then like gradually just build out the layers when I'm feeling better about myself, allow myself to be angry if that's how I'm feeling, allow myself to be sad and feel sorry for myself, but don't let that infiltrate the team or other people. Um, because I just didn't want to be seen like that. Um, and so One particular coach who I had when I was younger was Joyce Brown and she's, you know, an iconic person in netball and someone who is so well respected. And I was lucky that I had her as a coach as she was kind of coming towards the end of her coaching career. And she's just one person that's always super honest with you. So she knows when to give you a hug. She knows when to give you a rocket. She just knows people. And so she was the one person that was really helpful in that, okay, I'll make you feel better. I'll give you a hug. Then I'm going to call you tomorrow and I'm going to talk to you about, are you fit enough? Are you strong enough? Did you train hard enough? And then the next day I'm going to call you and give you another pump up and make sure you're okay. Then the next day I'm going to take you out on court and I'm going to flog you. So (laughs) she had this really interesting way of making it not about you, but making it about, you know, from the outside looking in, how would people see you currently and how would the world, how would, you know, netball want you to play and how does netball need you to play and were you actually in that position? And so she just gave me a reality check I needed, but in the nicest possible way to uh, allow me to take the time out, get myself right. And then after that, I had the best four years of my career because of that. I was, had a much better perspective on life, you know, taking time away from the sport, but, you know, also really realizing it is just sport too. It's not you know, you don't have cancer, you're not dying, you're not sick. Like you are actually doing something that you love and you need to find the enjoyment in it to be able to find that competitive spirit. And, you know, if you don't play again, you don't play again. But lucky for me, I wanted to play again and bloody loved it after that. It's, there's so many things out of that that I'd love to talk to you about. So, um, firstly, I don't know who said this. And so if someone could tell me, uh, that would be great. But, uh, it, it, it was, it's a quote that stays with me a bit about sport, which is the idea of uh, somebody was on the way to the game and somebody asked them, who's going to win today? And their answer was, I don't know. That's why we play the game. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. And to me that when I think about sport and try to be, be reminded that it is just sport, it's yes. a game, yes. you know, we've decided to play it. And the reason that we play it is to find out who's going to win. Yeah. And some days you're going to win and some days the other team's going to win and we're all going to have to, you know, take away from that what we take away from it. Yeah. But we're playing the game to find that out and that's what it is. It's a game. And I think that, you know, I think about that a lot in regard to, you know, what I do for a job. You mm. know, some days it goes better than others. Yeah. But you've got to do it to find out. That's right. You know, you play the game to find out what the result of the game is, right? Yeah. So it is just a game. But also it's your career and it's your life and it's your passion. Um, so during that time, what is it that you think that you, for, firstly, what did you find out about yourself going through that experience? Well, I found that I don't love a drama and I'm not an overly emotional person. And so when that's kind of forced upon you where you can't even hold it in anymore, <laughs> i the power of being vulnerable and showing that you're not okay was okay. And I had always been, you know, I think people would have seen me as like trying to always be the tough one and, you know, never sharing how they're feeling. And, and 
when I went through that, again, it was really just with the, the close people around me. I, I was revealing how I was actually feeling about it and getting it out of my system. And that helped me move on a whole lot quicker than trying to hold it all in and pretend I was okay. Because quite often in sport, you have to be okay. You know, you if you show the coach any sign that you're not strong or that you're struggling or that you've had a bad day, they will use any excuse they can to take you off that court. And so you always have to put up this guard. And I don't think that's a great thing. I think sport is definitely changing and that we are allowing athletes to be more vulnerable. And that's, you know, it doesn't mean they're not going to perform. Um, but yeah, that was a huge learning le- lesson for me. And it did take about six months for me to probably take that out of it too. Um, I also was would often surround myself with people, I just, to, you know, not to do the right thing, but you know, I'd have groups of people around me that I'd go and hang out with just for a bit of fun. But then you don't realize how much people drain your energy and that people zap you because they might want to talk about netball when you don't want to talk about netball, or they might want to whinge about how their day is when in reality, it's not that bad. And, and so in that six months I had away, I was like, how nice is it to spend time with people that actually make you feel good about yourself, that lift you up, that fill your energy. And we all have that choice with who we spend time with. I mean, yes, you sometimes always have to spend time with annoying people, but (laughs) how much do you let them affect you is your choice too. Um, And so I just went on a bit of a cull around, you know, having the right people around you at at that time and and being okay with that. You don't have to be friends with everybody. You don't have to be nasty, but you don't have to be friends with everybody. Spend time with the people that make you feel good. Uh, And I imagine, because you mentioned this in passing, but I I imagine that often the idea we have about how other people react is just an idea in our own heads. Yeah. Like, you know, when you're like, oh, I've disappointed my parents, you know, they were planning their trip to <laughs> India for the Commonwealth Games. I bet when you called them to tell them, they weren't like, fuck you, we were going no, to India no, for the no, Commonwealth no. Games. That would have made me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> but no, exactly. Because, they, you know, yeah. like they just want you to do your best and then they feel sorry for you. And yeah. I'm like, I don't want you to feel sorry for me. And <laughs> yeah, it's just this whirlwind of emotions that you go through. But um, uh, yeah, I look back on that time now and I think, that was the best thing that ever happened to me by far. Like it's been, yeah, it was such a good lesson. And sometimes I hear back me talking on things like this when it happened, it was like the worst thing that had happened to me. But it's funny how over time your, pers- your perspective on things completely changes. And uh, the other thing was the external perspective mm. on yourself and how important that can be sometimes is because I think it is very hard for us sometimes to see, you know, probably the hardest thing of all is to understand how we're seen to other people. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because we have this image. We're the, you know, stars of our own movies, right? Yeah. So we have this idea about how the world perceives us. And then often that is actually not how we're being perceived by the rest of the world, whether it's whether you work hard enough or you're, yeah. you work too hard, whether you're, you know, kind or not kind. And it can change from person to person. Mm-hmm. I, I'm also of the opinion that no one is any one of those things to everyone. No, absolutely not. And I also, um, I don't know where this fits in, but there's, there's, as an athlete, I always wanted everything to be fair. I wanted everyone to be treated fairly and equally. Yeah. And we all know that's absolute bullshit in the real world. Like it just doesn't ever happen. Even in athlete life, it doesn't even happen. But we have this mentality that things should be fair. So when they're not, that's when we get really hurt by them. But yeah, what is fairness anyway? Like, what does that actually even mean? But it was just such a thing that was always in my head and uh, I needed to get that out pretty quickly. (laughs) I love it. So um, I I normally ask people whether they have a philosophy, a particular philosophy. We've talked about a whole bunch of things already, (laughs) but is there one in particular that you, that you have? Um, well, I think it does change and evolves for sure, but there's definitely part of me now that it's around just finding the calmness in the chaos of the world, whether that's in my own world or whatever I'm doing. I, I can't stand drama, but it's everywhere. And I can't stand everyone being outrageous, like, outraged about things, but it's everywhere. So it's just whatever's going on, whatever I'm doing, trying to find the calm way forward. Um, and that's also probably leads to a bit of, I'm a, I try and be and put a filter of positivity over everything and optimism because I think sometimes no matter what's going on, all we have is belief and all we have is kind of hope and you have the power to actually determine what happens next if you see it in a more of a positive light than a negative light. 
it's um it's amazing the power of your state of mind. Oh, it's huge. Uh, I uh, have spoken about this on the podcast before, but one of the best bits of advice that I ever got from a therapist is it, it seemed at the time so counterintuitive, mm. but it was about a work situation that I had where I was having a terrible time and I felt like I was being, you know, treated badly at work. But yep. the more grumpy I became about how I was being treated badly, the more grumpy they became yes. because they just wanted to be, they wanted to think that I was having a great time at work. Mm-hmm. So the more that I wasn't having a great time at work, the more that they would then be giving me a hard time. And then the more I wasn't having a great time. <laughs> and so my therapist was just like, just pretend you're having a good time. She goes, just pretend yep. you'll know that you're not, but just pretend that you like them and you're having a great time. Yep. And then after a while, I actually found that I was having a pretty good time. And that's the whole fake it till you make yeah. it. But some people get up in arms about, oh, that's a stupid quote. I love it because you walk into a room or you wake up in the morning and you might be having a shit time. But if you walk out and you're smiling and you go, hey, good morning, how are you going? And you actually put on a positive front, by the end of the day, that becomes your reality because you've forced yourself into it. So I'm all for fake it till you make it. <laughs> Uh, so, all right. So you, you, you are a professional athlete and you, you are a professional athlete until you're how old? 33. I retired at 33. So now this to me is where things get really interesting because (laughs) up until this point, in a way, there's been a structure to your life. In that from 18 years old, you've gone from essentially school mm-hmm. where there's a structure around, you know, the way that you develop and learn and these sort of things. You know, you're growing up in the country. There's a structure around, you know, you start playing at under 10s or under 12s and then you move to the under 14s and then you, you know, there's a, you know, you play, you know, yeah, regionals like or blah, blah, blah. There's always at least a kind of vague plan, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And and if you're very good, then there's the next plan, which is you play for your, you know, your state or you know, then, your, then your country. And yeah. if you play for your country, the next plan is to get into a leadership position or do this, right? These are the plans. You're working towards these things. They may not be precise plans. They may, they may not always go to plan, but there's a sort of vague structure to how your world operates. Yeah. <laughs> and then 33 years old, that's suddenly for the first time probably ever, it's just like, oh, well, it's all up to you now. Yeah. Whatever you want to do now, <laughs> everything's a possibility, but uh, we've got nothing else for you. This is, you're done. Yeah. So tell me about that. Tell me about when you finish and, and what where you're at at that point. Well, fortunately, and some people see this as unfortunately, but I actually see it as fortunately as female athletes, you have to have something else to do. So, you know, I finished school, I yes, made the Aussie team, but I was at uni. So I did a teaching degree at uni, taught for a couple of years, part-time again while I was playing. What were you teaching? Uh, PE and science. And I was always in these cushy jobs where the principal, I could go, I've got to go to Jamaica for three Mm. weeks to play netball. And they'd be like, okay, take leave without pay. Yep. That's fine. All the other staff hated me because I had all this flexibility but it's just what you had to do. And it was about, <laughs> in a way, it was when I learned also the power of, you know, networking and also just just being honest with your situation. And people want to work with you if they can, rather than, you know, they're going to see it as a complete, no, I can't employ you. So I did that. Then I actually worked at Essendon Footy Club. They needed a teacher. They wanted someone in an education community role. It was a two-day-a-week role. Um, there was a lot of flexibility. So then I worked there for about three years and my job was a bit of well-being and helping the boys do other things outside of actually just playing footy. So it was what I had to do as a netballer anyway. So then Peter Jackson gave me a role at Essendon. So then I was there for a few years and and then I decided uh, myself and Cheryl McMahon, we loved the leadership space. So then we went to the government, got some funding. And so I was always quite uh, to do some leadership workshops and I was always quite entrepreneurial. I really loved the idea of just being able to find little um, kind of pockets of gold where you could earn little bits of money and it all add up to be enough to yeah. support your netball career. A couple of little side games. Yeah, a little, little side a little hustle. Side, yeah, a little side hustle here yeah. and there. Yeah. So I became the queen of the side hustle. And so by the time I retired, I was lucky that it was my choice to retire. I'd had enough. My body was dead. I did not want to play another game. Um, and straight away, I went into okay, now I can actually do something more substantial. I can actually put more time and effort in. I'm not having to ask for time off all the time. 
Uh, and so I went in and had a go at doing the commentary and traveling around doing all of that in netball. Um, I then got off at a breakfast radio gig, which is on this um, station called Eon Sports. No longer exists, but <laughs> don't blame me. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> then it became about say yes to things and worry about logistically how you're going to do it all later. So just have the courage to say yes. Have a go. Who cares if you shit? You know, no one expects anything else of you. So Yeah, but that's... I mean, you say that, you know, reasonably flippantly now, but I can imagine coming from the background of success that you have and the fact that even in these things that you are doing as your side hustles, they are in the space of, you know, developing people's lives more broadly and, you know, giving them pathways to success and these sort of things that I can't imagine that you were entirely just taking these things flippantly, like, and sort of being like, well, let's just see what happens. Well, yeah, not entirely, but you know, this is actually, um, so I'm good friends with Justin Kaczynski who paid for the Saints and he retired a couple of years before me. And I, we would always sit down, have a coffee, just kind of just brainstorming about what's going on. And he had said to me, you, uh, in, in your first year out, everyone comes at you with opportunities. Like you are absolutely exhausted by all these different things. You say yes to everything and you get to the end of the year and you're like, whoa, okay, sporting life is actually way easier. So I had that in the back of my mind and that's exactly what happened. I had so many different people coming to me about different things and I, in my back of my head, was like, okay, I don't want to work one full-time job. I want to try everything and I want to see where I fall and what I love and what makes me feel good. And I'm going to try and make that into a job. And I look back now and I'm still in that phase. I'm still trying all different things. Some things I love doing and I'll keep doing some things I don't. So I haven't picked them up again, but it's just, I think being confident in yourself and backing myself that I've got, you know what? I have a teaching degree I can fall back on if I need, but at the moment I love being able to try different things and see if it is in my wheelhouse and what I want to do. I always guarantee I'll bloody work hard at it, whatever it is, and I'll do the preparation because that's what athlete life has taught me. Um, But I'm also okay if I fail. I'm also okay if it doesn't work out. If it's something that I really want to do, then I'll try and get back in there. But if it doesn't work out, then you know what? It just didn't work out and I'll try something else. Uh, So, which brings us to one of the more prominent things that you have done, which is uh, you went on the TV show, The Block. (laughs) Which, like, to me is terrifying because I, I mean, I can't fix anything. Like, the other day I was talking to my brother-in-law because he was around at my house and he was uh, fixing some chairs that have, have been broken for, like, you know, 18 months that I've just been sitting on broken. And he, <laughs> he couldn't stand it anymore. So he went around the house and found some stuff to fix them. And then he uh, was laughing at me because I had optimistically said that I thought I was going to paint my office. I was like, I was like... I was like, I reckon I could learn how to paint. Like I said, uh, surely I can, I said, surely I can, like there's something on YouTube or whatever. I can Google like how to paint a wall or whatever. And he's like, oh no, mate, you have to clean the brushes and it's a real hassle. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, you know work. what? I'll call Jim's, Jim's painting. It'll right be fine. <laughs> but, but were you, what made you go on the block? Well, so my dad's a builder, so I've grown up around it. Um, But I was just a massive fan of the show. I just loved it. I would watch more of The Block than I ever would watch probably Nepal on TV. Like I just love the show. I would sit there and my competitive spirit in me, I'd see them all the time going, oh my God, it's the hardest thing I've ever done. And I'm like, really? If you could do it, surely I could do it. I actually applied for it in my, uh, when I, so I was, Com Games in 2014, I was still in the Australian team and I was over in the Athletes Village and I got my first call back. So I had applied for the show when I was still playing, thinking, I wonder if I could fit it in, in over pre-season, which is the biggest joke ever because there's no chance they would let you do it anyway. But I, I, so, and I said to them, I can't get back for the interview because I'm over here playing for Australia. Like, give me some leeway. And they're like, no, sorry, we don't care. Like, we, do, we just move on. We've got to cast the show. So then I applied again the next year and got all the way down. So I did it with a friend of mine, Carla Dewaki, and we had lots of people telling us, you can't do it with another girl because you don't have a trade. It's going to be so much harder. How are you physically going to cope? And Carla is a teammate of mine and we both retired in the same year. And I'm thinking, do people underestimate us? Like we're physically strong and fit. Like surely we could push ourselves through. And I mean, you're both, because she, how, how tall is... Well, she's 6'2 as well. Yeah, exactly. So you're both, <laughs> you know, you, like you're both as tall 
as most men for a start. Totally. And you're both professional athletes. <laughs> That's right. And and Carla and I were both single and we were both just wanted something exciting to do and part of the block, it was more my idea than hers. And she just renovated her first apartment and I'd helped her with it. And I'm like, let's just do it. Like kind of one of those things where you just like stuff it. Let's just see what happens. So the second time we applied, we got all the way down to the end and it was 10 days before you meant to start filming. And we got told we weren't on. And so we're like, oh God, like it was like being dropped from a team all over again. And cause you can't tell anyone that you're going through this process. It's all confidential. And so then the two of us are like, right, <laughs> we've got six months until the next casting. They said that we didn't have to go through the whole process again, but if the jigsaw puzzle fitted in our way with casting, we would get on the Gatwick in St Kilda. So lucky it all worked out in our favor. And, but it was one of those things where neither of us knew what we were getting ourselves in for. We didn't understand, I don't think, they tell you it's going to be really hard. You don't understand how hard it is until you're doing it. Um, we didn't realise what being on that side of a reality TV show is like, being a contestant where you've got producers creating storylines. Nothing's fair <laughs> with that whole mentality we had about everything should be fair. Nothing is fair. Um, and also completely relinquishing control of anything. You can't control how you are going to be edited. You can't control what you're doing in a day. You, no one tells you anything. No one tells, you know, because it's all part of the show. And so that was one of the best things that I think I've ever put myself through because I learned so much about myself and because I had to push myself far beyond the limit that I ever thought I could. And athlete life is hard, but it's very protected and you have support, you have psychs, you have doctors, you have nutritionists, you have everyone there making sure you sleep well and you eat well and that your body's ready to perform. And then you go on a reality TV show like The Block and they go, they don't care what you eat. They don't care how much sleep you get. No, in fact, we prefer you don't get enough sleep and totally. say something terrible on TV. We want to TV. send you crazy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we'd like you, you'd like you in tears <laughs> at some stage. We'd like you fighting with some yeah. other people. And, and the best way to do that is either booze or lack of sleep. So we're gonna... exactly right. And so then you're all of a sudden in this world and the only thing we had was each other. And lucky we were good friends, but we used a lot of our athletes kind of world where we would have conversations with each other before we went on and we were like, okay, what makes you uncomfortable? What do you need me to protect you from? What's, you know, what's going to, how can I help you basically? And we said that about each other and we made sure that we just had a mentality that no matter what happened, no matter if the judges liked our style or not, we weren't going to throw each other under the bus. Probably not great from a reality TV perspective and that we were so tight like that because as we realised, all the show wanted to do was try and break us. They wanted us to cry. They thought being two girls on this show on their own trying to do it, the first thing you're going to do is burst into tears when things get tough. But I was really proud of us that the fact the whole time, I was like, I've been yelled at by coaches worse than what Keith, the foreman's yelling at me. Like it's, you know, we've, we're finding, we've been trained to be calm in amongst these situations and problem solves our way out of it. And that's exactly what we did the whole time. Um, the hardest thing I've ever done though, like every other contestant that I've heard say that they're exactly right. It is brutal, but I bloody loved it. Uh, the capacity to accept feedback, like, you know, particularly negative or critical feedback is something that I think athletes have in general when they, yeah. you know, I, I work with, uh, you know, uh, Luke Darcy, who's, you mm -hmm. know, an ex champion footballer, uh, you know, in my day job and, you know, I've come from the world of entertainment where we're all, you know, pampered artists and yeah. all, you know, <laughs> yeah, everything, you know, it, like, I mean, it's a very different world. We're very sensitive to, you know, feedback, very good at dishing it out, but very, you know, yeah. like tough to take it. Whereas like I noticed with him the way that he will have much blunter, you know, direct conversations around if we're having an issue. Like, you know, he'll be like, well, here's an issue we're having. Let's address this issue yeah. and get it done. <laughs> yeah. Whereas I'm like, oh, no, I was planning just to keep it to myself yeah. for about eight months yeah. and let it silently <laughs> destroy me. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I guess we've both got our own ways of doing things. but <laughs> Yeah, we're so, we're so rigid like that and we want negative feedback. Yeah. I need to know how I can be better. The positive stuff, oh, yeah, that's mm. nice that you tell me that I'm good at that. But, you know, I don't need that. I want you to tell me how I can be better. What's wrong with me so I can improve? Yeah, so when we would stand there on a Sunday judging, and that was the thing actually Kyla and I thought we would be most fearful of is standing there and being critiqued about something that we know we're not experts at. But again, that whole we're not experts at it, so we were okay with it and that 
the other contestants, you would hear them and they are like, <gasps> like this as they're getting all the negative feedback. But we would want the negative feedback. So the next room we're like, okay, at least we've learned what we shouldn't do next week. Um, yeah. So we had a very athlete mentality to how we went about it. Um, but to the block's credit, it's not a reality show where they are setting a lot of stuff up in that they tell you, we don't give you enough money. We don't give you enough time. That's going to cause drama anyway. They do exaggerate things that happen, but they're certainly not. They don't edit anything out of sequence. It. I was so paranoid during the filming about what storylines they were going to angle for us and how it was all good. Because, you know, it could make or break your career from there on in. Um, but then when we watched it, it was like, oh, everyone was captured exactly how they were to us. Their characters, everybody was exactly how they were. So I think the, that's why the show is so successful because it probably isn't that unrealistic. Uh, so uh, we, we've got to start finishing up. I, I always say start finishing up because it takes me a while to, to wind, <laughs> yeah, to to wind up. up. But uh, you go on a TV show like The Block, it's the most popular show on the television. You've been used to being in the public eye, but you're also a, a netballer, which yes. to a certain extent means that you're kind of half pregnant. You know what I mean? Like yes. you're halfway in the public eye. You've had the trappings of certainly being very recognizable to those who follow the sport, yep. you know, or, you know, like who follow sport perhaps, but to perhaps the broader public, you could still walk down the street, you know, without somebody, someone might go, there's a tall girl, yeah. Gee, you're but without going. Yeah, yeah, right. But suddenly you're on a show that's, you know, in middle Australia's living rooms and a lot of living rooms and you're suddenly a, you're a celebrity. You're, you're not just a celebrity, but you're somebody who people are having discussions about. Like, you know, when you turn on the radio, you know, you could run into a conversation of people just having an opinion one way or the other about you, (laughs) about, you know, what you're like, uh, you know, you're down the shops, everybody's got an opinion about you. And what, what was that like? Yeah, that was a big eye-opener because you're right, netball media, you're very protected. It's all very positive. Basically, if you played a bad game, you just weren't mentioned, you know, in the articles about the game. Like, it's not very, yeah. we're not, we don't yeah. criticise, we're, you know, it's not like AFL. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so it was just, it was interesting. I tried to protect myself from the general, you know, social media we, we did have a lot of a presence on there, but I wouldn't delve into all the comments and read it. I just, Smart. I just don't care enough. And you know what? Nor should you. Yeah. And you know, if you don't like me, you don't like me, whatever. Carla though, on the other hand, she bloody loved it. She'd be up all night, like reading it and like <laughs> telling me. And I was like, don't tell me. I don't want to know what people say. And the thing that cracked us up the most is from the very start of filming, we're like, they, they, they were playing on the angle that we were single, that we were two six foot tall, former athletes, that, that we were best friends. Yet a lot of the commentary online were that we were a couple and that we were together. And so that used to crack us up because we're like, how many times in the show are we like, we're friends, we're friends, we're friends. Yet everyone was like, oh, those two lesbians on the show. And you're like, no, we're not. You know, you're you're home renovating, (laughs) you're two tall women, you both play professional sport. People people aren't believing the producers of the block. No, they are. They're like, oh, yeah, no, they're friends. We understand what's going on. The thing that kind of came out of it, though, that, yes, I mean, there was some negative stuff, but most of it was pretty good. And I think it's just because that's how we carried ourselves on the show. Like we didn't really get too involved in a lot of the drama. And we, and if there was drama, we would avoid it and we would try and be as diplomatic as we could be, um, which was the producer's nightmare. But I'm glad that we caused that nightmare for them. Was there anything from watching the program that made you think, oh, I didn't know that? I, like, was there any level of, because you, as a sports person, you can watch back a game yeah, and you watch back the game and go, oh, I stood in the wrong position here. Or my body was in the wrong position when that ball came through. Or I should have like seen that coming down the field and like I didn't, yeah, didn't understand, down the court, didn't understand that. Yeah. You watch those tapes, you review your performance. But suddenly you're not really, I mean, reviewing the performance of building the room necessarily. You're, you're getting an insight into how the producers at the very least when they're putting their story together see you. Yeah. You get to step out side the show and see what a story of you, how you would be portrayed in that situation. Yeah. How, was there anything about watching that, that 
that made you think, oh, I didn't realize that was how I was perceived? Well, I think especially for us in the first four weeks, we were super paranoid and Carla and I would be texting each other because you're mic'd up from the minute you wake up to the minute you go to bed. So you can never have any conversations where people aren't listening to you. So we would thought we were being really savvy and everything over text message. We had text messages going, group messages with our trades, everyone. So we would be communicating offline. So that everything that we had online was how we wanted it to be. And that's a bloody exhausting way to be, especially on a show like that where you're not getting any sleep and, and you know, they, they need the content. So I think I spent the first four weeks way too paranoid about what they were trying to do to us rather than just having fun with it because they're there to make a TV show and I wanted to be on this TV show yeah. and you've got to give them something. There's no point giving them nothing and then not getting on the TV show. Well, and I remember one of the producers <laughs> said to us really early on, they're like, come on girls, like, you've got to have fun with us, you've got to do this with us, you know, you'll get no airtime. And I'm like, oh, I've not even thought about the airtime because we're on this show anyway and we'll build a room and we win it and you've got to show it. So that was kind of my mentality. <laughs> I'm like, you can't ignore We've it. We've got to show the room, yeah, but we don't have to show you. Yes. So then after we got to the four week mark and we were, you know, we were getting tight and then we just got stupid. So we were like these silly 16 year old girls. That's how we were acting, laughing at the most ridiculous things. And then we just started having fun with it. The producers started to see, let's not make, try and force them to cry because that's not them. Let's just have fun with them. And then the show and how we were portrayed in that last like, like 10 weeks of it was so much better because it was us. It was us just being losers and mucking around and saying dumb things. And yeah, so rather than try and hide it because we were paranoid, we just came out of our shells and took the piss out of everyone and, and just had a bloody great time. I ask this a lot, but this feels like an appropriate time to ask it, um, which is, do you think there's a perception that other people have of you that is inaccurate? Yeah. Yes. People think I'm really strong, like really a strong person and that I never kind of waver from that. Um, and I probably have definitely set that up in some ways too. Uh, but yeah, sometimes I just, I just am not, and I'm okay with that, but it's just this kind of image that I think people have out there that I can do everything. And like the block for another example where they're like, you girls just cruise through. And I'm like, that was the hardest thing I've ever done. And it took me 10 weeks afterwards to recover from it mentally and physically because I, yeah, having to put on that strong front all the time was exhausting. Um, and yeah, I, I keep a lot to myself because I, not that I don't care if people know or not, I just, um, that's just how I tackle and cope with things in life. So I think people think I'm a lot stronger than what I actually am. What do you think that your greatest strength is? Um, I, th I think it would be around probably finding a positive way through the negative. I think that would be one of my strengths. And I think that's what a lot of people, especially when I'm, you know, in a well-being space or in a leadership space, you know, whether it's talking to businesses or whatever, um, yeah, find it, being able to help navigate and problem solve that for people. Uh, I really enjoy that because I I find it quite easy myself to do. Not easy, but just I find there is a way. Uh, what do you think happens when you die? I think something happens. Um, I, I, I've become more spiritual like later on in my life too. And I believe there is something out there. There is a better world out there. I just don't know how it actually works, but I believe there is something. And I believe that, you know, people are, um, when you do pass away, like you kind of spirit lives on in some way in the normal world too. When you say you've become more spiritual, is it just in mind or is it in practice as well? Like, you know, is there elements of spirituality that you have like, you know, in your world, whether it be like, you know, meditation or religion of some kind or any sort of organized, you know, spirituality? Um, it definitely, meditation, yes. Like I find that a great coping strategy when the shit's hit the fan or you're trying to find that calmness in the chaos or the positive way through. Like the block example, the one place I could find where when I was getting so rattled and I was exhausted and I had no way, I didn't know how to problem solve what I was going through, I would climb up the scaffold onto the roof of the Gatwick and sit looking over St Kilda, knowing that if I was quiet, the cameras couldn't find me up on the roof because they couldn't safely climb up there. And I would have 10 minutes where I just sat still and listened to what was going on around me, even if it was the bloody drill downstairs going on, like you just acknowledging just being in the moment. Um, 
that that is one thing that I've really put into practice quite a lot and it just helps me kind of gain perspective on wherever I'm at and whatever I'm doing and even if it's I'm feeling nervous or anxious about something coming up just giving myself two minutes in the car just to kind of take stock of where I am and what I'm doing helps me get through and yeah it's just a coping mechanism really. How important is the idea of love in your life? It doesn't have to be you know uh, love in the broadest of all terms whatever way you want to define the answer to that question? Um, yeah, I think it's really powerful. I think everyone wants to be loved and have love around them. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I think it's really important, but I also, it's important not just taking it, but giving it back as well. Um, and making sure in a world of negativity that, you know, we're sharing that love around as much as we can to the people that mean the most to us. If you had a time machine and you could go back to any moment of your life and have another go at it, would you take the opportunity? Would you click the ticket or are you one of those people who's just like, oh, well, everything that's happened got me to here and I, and I, and I won't jump in? No, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm a bit of a hard ass like that. And I'm like, yeah, it's happened. You know, this kind of got me here. Um, but there's probably one moment and that was when I made the Aussie team when I was 18. My parents really wanted to come. My mum really wanted to come over there. And I didn't want her to go because I was like, I need to do this on my own. I don't even know if I'm going to get caught on the court. I don't want the pressure of you being over there and me thinking oh, I'm letting you down. So I didn't let her come. And then I played my first test match over there. And, you know, I could see the emotional toll that it had took on her. So if I had my time again, I'd probably definitely have just let her come and watch. <laughs> what an asshole was I. <laughs> but anyway, it's what I needed to do at the time. So I guess you don't go back and change it. But yeah, sorry about that, mum. That's a good, that's a good answer. I like that. I, I, I never know what I'm looking for when I ask that question, but I am often, uh, just fascinated and delighted <laughs> by the answers. And yeah. I really like that one. That yeah. one's, I think that anyone would understand, you know, you're a kid and you, you know, a, you don't know, as you've expressed, you know, before you don't want to let anybody down, but B, I imagine you're going away with some adults and yeah. you don't want to be the one who's brought mum. You don't want to be the either. 18 with mum on yeah, the, the sidelines. Yeah, exactly. You know? <laughs> Uh, and I bet your mum understood that as well. But at the same time, I'm, I, I also understand the idea of going, no, 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 it would have been nice to have her there. Yeah, and I'm sure right. it would have been nice for her, who I imagine drove you around to a few oh, netball tournaments and stuff. All the time. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, mum. <laughs> um, we're nearly done, but uh, uh, can I ask you, um, uh, what would you hope that people would say about you, um, you know, uh, behind your back? What would you hope that people say, <laughs> you know, when they talk about you, you know, when, you, when they, when you're not around, what would you hope that people say? Um, I think just simply that I'm a good person because I try and do that as much as I can is be a good person in the way you act, the way you behave, the way you treat people. Um, you know, I, it is not hard to say hello to someone and see how they're feeling. It's not hard to check in with people. It's, um, and I feel like I spend a lot of time going out of my way to make sure other people are okay because I know that they're there for me when I need them. Um, so I just hope that people think I've been a good person and I continue to be a good person. <laughs> there you go. That's a good way to finish the podcast. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you uh, giving me the time. Good luck with uh, the, yes, the the slide. slide. Into the ice bath at the MCG, and and what else? What's next uh, for you? What 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 is next on on your agenda? Well, no more reality TV, but just splitting. I like splitting my time between the media and the leadership space. So if I can continue to do that and not have a real job, uh, I'll keep doing that. But thanks for having me on. I love the podcast. I'm a big fan. I'm always listening. Whenever I've got downtime, I've always got it on. So well, I love you, your work. Well, I, I, will you listen to this one, or are you the sort of person you're hmm. like, oh, I won't listen back to my own one because um, I hate when. I go on, I, there's a few of my favorite <laughs> podcasts that I get invited on yeah. and I, I always enjoy doing the podcast, but then I hate that week because my regular, oh, I was going to listen to that podcast yeah, on gone. Tuesday and now I can't listen <laughs> yes. to it because I'm on it. I know. I've ruined it by being on my favorite podcast. <laughs> well, yes, I don't think I will be listening back, uh, but uh, yeah, no, it's, don't you think? I just love, I love the power of podcasts. It's the best. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> 